we are taking a, a break from 1 Thessalonians. We're going to push the pause button and uh, continue in what Jim launched out for us to do, celebrating uh, the season of Advent. We're going to focus on the birth of the Savior. And uh, uh, I chose, and I'll probably get into this maybe a little bit later on in the sermon, how I chose the book of Ruth, uh, all the rest of that. But uh, I, I want to make a, a, a few introductory comments, and then we're going to go uh, today through the first chapter, and then next week, the Lord willing, through the second, and then through the third, and then through the fourth chapter. I have found, and I've read over and over again all this last week, this incredible, this beautiful, and by the way, if you just call it a love story between Ruth and Boaz, you're going to miss the real message of the book of Ruth. It, it is one of the most powerful short stories, and I'm talking about in all of literature, not just the Bible, but all of literature. Now, what is incredible is that this book, I want you to think about, we look at the Bible and, and we should bring it up to date and all the rest of that, but this book was written 2,700 years ago. 2,700 years ago, and it is just as contemporary as any book today that is written right now. It's filled with all of these wonderful types and figures, and I believe, and I think you'll see this as we go through it, it is a stunning parallel to the Christmas story. Here are some of the themes, and we're going to hit on one of these themes today and, and, and really try to hunker down on this, the incredible providence of God at all times. And, and right here, we're going to see in the first chapter that it's during dark times as well as just the good times. We're going to see the story of a, a noble and a gracious man named Boaz who foreshadows not only Joseph, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're, we're going to discover as we go through this in the next couple of weeks, the, the, the picture of what's called a kinsman redeemer. We're going to look at several Old Testament themes and laws that were found back then and how it foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. And above all, we're going to see, talk about a parallel, the story of a brave young woman I could add, and man, because Boaz is in there too. But they both make radical commitments, get this, to trust God. And then this young woman travels to Bethlehem where she gives birth to a child who will impact the world. And it foreshadows even Mary who gives birth to a child who will change the world. So let's look at this and let's define some words before we actually jump in and start to read. And we're going to read several different passages as we go through this. You can see those outlined. You do have the outline, don't you, in front of you? And I hope you'll make some notes on this. The first thing we need to do is to try our best with our little limited minds to understand the concept of God's providence. And so I'm I'm, I'm going to squeeze, I'm going to try, I'm going to do my best to squeeze a lot of theology and just 
really a couple of sentences, and then we're going to look at the backstory of Ruth and how all of God's providence is working in the midst of it. And I hope that, that as we walk through this one theme, that it's going to give incredible hope to you as well. So what is God's providence? What can help us understand God's providence? By the way, I will tell you this, that for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, understanding the best we can, God's providence is probably one of the most important things that we can do. And I'm talking for right now. Understanding things that are going on in your life and in our situation right now. So let me give you a definition. You can write down a couple of key words. You don't need to write down the whole sentence. But here is a, a, a working definition of God's providence. God's Works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful. Now, if you're going to write down any part of it, write down this next word. Governing or guiding or ordering. You got those three words? Governing, guiding, ordering. They all basically mean the same things. So God's providence is how He governs or guides or orders his creation, all of it, after the counsel of His will, you could write down that word, to His own glory. There are so many verses that I could point to. But let me give you one that, that I, I hope will personalize this for you. Jesus said these words, and, and all of these are set into a particular context. The context of this is you, if you continue to read in John chapter 5 is you're going to discover that when Jesus made this assertion, the people around him, the Jews around him understood exactly what he was asserting. He was saying that he is God and, and they wanted to kill him when they heard that. So listen to this and try to personalize it for your life, not just 2,000 years ago with a man who was walking the earth named Jesus. He said two things. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. Think of the most difficult situation that you have faced this last week, this last month, this last year. Would it help? And I know many of you have already done that. Many of you here, many of you at home, you've already done this as a practical thing that helps you to understand that God the Father has worked through that circumstance. Yes, that circumstance, the most difficult one. And Jesus added, because he, he was making himself equal with God, and I am working in whatever situation of life you find yourself. Now, let, let me just give a parenthesis here. And for you theologians, I, I want to try my best to give you a, a, a difference because you're probably thinking, okay, now, I, I, I'm getting you about God's guidance and God's governing and all the rest of that, but how does God's providence differ from God's decrees. 
And I'm going to show you a verse here in just a minute that I hope will help you understand this. But God's decrees are how He plans or ordains all things that will happen. Stop right there. Do not get hung up on the things that you cannot answer. We are not talking about a blind fatalism. I'm going to come back and say that in just a few moments. We are talking about, again, God who is most holy, who is most wise, who is most powerful, that He really does have a plan in spite of the chaos that seems to be going on around you. And so we find that all the way through the Bible, Isaiah 46 talks about this. We find that God has a plan. Generally, God has a plan for your life. But not only that, it's one thing to have a plan, it's another thing to be able to accomplish that plan. And there are a whole lot of people around us who call themselves evangelical Christians who really do not believe this with all of the, because of all of the problems surrounding it. They have a hard time looking and seeing the things that are going on and putting that into the fact that God has a plan. Boy, sure doesn't look like it's working out very well. God is accomplishing His plan? Yes. People who believe in open theism, for example, Open theism is just a, a system of theology, things about God, where people believe that God really does not have a plan or that He can accomplish His plan, but get this, He is a good guesser. And so He can kind of look ahead and see, what, you know, He, he kind of follows up with what has already happened. And we're going to look at a New Testament verse that blows that right out of the water. Look at this verse here. Let's just walk through it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I, I love this. What does he start out with? Guys, recognize, I am God. That should be enough. He distinguishes himself from all of the other so-called gods, little g, that are all around us. I am God, and there is none like me. And when we begin to doubt God, we need to go back to that. And while there's a lot packed into these two verses, the primary thing is, I am God, and there is none like me. And here's what I do. Here's my plan. This is God's decree. Declaring the end from the beginning. Again, don't read fatalism into that. But don't go to the other side and read chaos into it either. I declare the, the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet been done. Now here's, here's in this next phrase is a beautiful differentiation between God's decrees and God's providence. All right? Now again, I, I hope I'm not losing you, but this, I said gave the caveat a few minutes ago, this is for you theologues out there, okay? You want to know the difference. Hey, what's the difference between God's decree and God's providence? Here it is. My counsel will stand. And I will, here's God's providence, accomplish. I am going to weave things together. 
so that all of my purpose, my counsel, that is my decree, all of them will be accomplished. If we don't have that church, we are dead in the water. Again, it's one of those powerful things that you and I can know. I, I, I was trying to think of illustrations, and of course, one of the, the illustrations, it's an old one, but it, it works here. Some people have said you look at a beautiful tapestry or a rug that has been woven, and it's so beautiful, the patterns on it and all the rest, and you turn it around, and it's all this jumble of threads. And so I, I would define God's decrees as the threads, the material that go into that tapestry. But as long as it's just the material, it's just laying there. It does nobody any good. It's only when a master weaver can take the raw material and all of those threads and weave them together so that you look at one part, one side, and it doesn't look like it makes any sense, but you turn it around, and it is absolutely beautiful. If nothing else, this says that there is not, listen, there is not one thing that happens in your life. Please hear this. From your birth to your death that is an accident. Solomon said, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We were playing cards the other night with some friends. Several of us at several times complained of having a bad hand, playing spades. Somebody went nil, they got set, it was the girls. Somebody else went nil, and he made it, it was the guys. The guys won, I made the quip, the guys usually win. That didn't go over very well. Even in that, even in something as, as little as a card game, are you saying that God ordains everything? Now, that does not negate the free moral choice that you have of laying down your cards. Or let's put it in the, the realm of life. You have been handed certain cards. You may not feel like God has dealt you a very good hand. And that could be about anything that's going on in your life. But I'll tell you this, you are responsible for playing the cards that you have been dealt, but it's not an accident. You know, the, the word accident is absolutely not in God's vocabulary. Uh, that's why some of these quotes that I've given to you are so important. That, that one about death, when I said a minute ago, from the moment of your birth, let's put it back even further. From the moment of your conception to the moment of your death, there is a divine decree and there is a divine providence that gets you there. I, I could stop and go 
into my own personal life, into the personal lives of people in this room and people watching, whose beginning, humanly speaking, was not planned. I've shared with you before. By all rights, humanly speaking, I'm an accident. But not according to God's decree and God's providence. And the moment of my... Let's just look at that one by Erwin Lutzer. I've got two quotes of his, pastor of Moody Bible Church. And that second quote of his is just... This is going to be a stretch, I know, for some of you. Because I look at the media and... and TV primarily, uh, the mainstream, and there is so much fear, so much fear. Now, do we take things seriously when it comes to death? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But as believers, we believe, listen to what Lucer says, our death is just as meticulously planned as the death of Christ, and we know his was planned. There is no combination of evil men. By the way, he wrote this long before COVID or before the election. There is no combination of evil men, disease, or accidents that can kill you, kill us, as long as God still has work for us to do. To those who walk with faith in God's providence, they die according to God's timetable. The immediate cause of death might be any number of things, but ultimate cause is God. Yes, wicked men nailed Christ to the cross, yet we read, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Wow. Jim, I'm glad you preached on this passage of Scripture this past week. And and I looked at that and I, I thought, There's one phrase in here. We can look at all of the names of Christ, and they're wonderful. But there's one phrase in here that we need to see that fits into what we're talking about in terms of the providence of God. For us, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the... Have you ever thought about this phrase? The government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, you know, in the past, I've looked at that and thought, well, the government, which government? Trump's government? Biden's government. The government of Russia? The government of China? Which one? No, it's talking about the governing. Jesus said, my father is working, and I am working right up until now. The babe born in the manger grew up, lived a perfect life, was crucified for sinners like you and me, died, was buried, was raised on the third day, and ascended. And the government of the cosmos is in his hand. You know, without the truth of God's providence, this is, an, this is hollow. Romans 8, 28 is hollow. Now, most of you are using the ESV. Can you quote that out of the English Standard Version? God, excuse me, we know that all things work together for good. I chose 
to quote it. I normally quote out of the ESV, but I chose the New American Standard, NASB, because it really puts it in a way where the ESV is not wrong. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, so that we might be shaped into the image of Christ. We know that. But, but how can we hope that all things work together for good? Because we know that God works all things together for good. By the way, that's all things. The backstory of Ruth, let me do that, and then we're going to go through this, and we'll go through it pretty quickly. We had to get through the providence part of what is happening in the book of Ruth and in your life and in my life. And in, in, in our country right now, backstory of Ruth. Here's here's how I I'll go ahead and tell you how I chose Ruth this last Sunday. We were on the way back from Dallas. Uh, Jan was studying her BSF study, and and we were just talking about it. We 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 just we always have a good time when we talk through those things. It's just so rich. And we were in Genesis 19. Now, for those of you, and please don't turn there right now. For those of you who don't know, Genesis 19 is probably one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible. It's horrible. It is absolutely horrific. It's the story of Lot. Now, how is this related to Ruth? We're going to get to that in just a second. Story of Lot, and he had two visitors that came, angels. We won't go into all the details. I'll let you parents take that and Use that as you will, but there were uh, the men of the town to a man. Every man came and wanted to abuse the the visitors, the angelic visitors. Um, This was the final straw, by the way. One abomination too many that caused, it was already in in the works. It was already in the works. That's why the two messengers came. But uh, they came to warn Lot of the impending doom of Solomon. Excuse me, Sodom. Solomon, Sodom. See if you're listening. Okay, all right. And um, so as, as the story goes on, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, the, the girls, his two daughters were engaged. He saw, I, I'm, I'm telling you, Lot is an interesting person, by the way. Uh, it calls him righteous Lot in the New Testament. It's hard to see with some of the things that he did. I, it really, it's just, it's difficult but people make bad decisions. And, and so he had these two daughters that were, they were engaged. The, Lot said, okay, we got to get out of here. We're going to get destroyed. And they thought he was kidding, and so they leave. And his wife is another picture. Do you, do you realize, you know what the, the shortest verse in the Bible is? Two words. Jesus wept. Very good. Somebody knew it. Um, what's the second shortest verse in the Bible? Remember Lot's wife. It's all about once you've started in a direction of following Christ, you got your hands on the plow. Don't look back. That's what Sodom, that's what Lot's wife did. Brain fog. Okay. Blame it on that. Pillar of salt. Anyway, it goes on, and the story is Ruth was from a nation called Moab. And again, through some very horrific things. The nation of Moab was brought about 
Listen, listen, I'll just say it like this, boil it down, so you parents can help these precious, precious young people to understand, and maybe even some of us to understand that, that making the soft, easy choice is often not the right choice. And making the wrong choice, can God providentially use that in his whole scheme? Well, yes, he can, and he did with the person of Ruth who came from Moab. But there were some painful, painful circumstances that grew out of Moab's birth and his becoming a nation, enemies hostile to the nation of Israel, and they were condemned. They were, they were cursed. And yet Ruth comes from that lineage. So with that backstory, wow, that's a whole sermon, isn't it? Well, it's a snow day, so we, let's go through this. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read these, and we're going to make a couple of comments. Verses 1 through 5, you need, you need to follow this. A hard season and a dark providence. Are you going through that now? Okay. And by the way, I, I encourage you to study this. There is so much here that I simply can't get to. In the days when the judges ruled, we find that from the verse just preceding, but this story is probably said in Judges chapter 3. Okay, so you're going to have to go back uh, to see where it was set in Judges 3. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Why? Probably because of the disobedience of Israel. If you go back and look at the judges, disobedience, punishment. Disobedience, punishment, judge. Judge would come to deliver as a type of Christ. So there was famine, obviously from the rebelliousness of Israel. A man of Bethlehem in Judah from Bethlehem. By the way, do you know what that word Bethlehem means? House of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. He went to sojourn in the country of Moab. What in the world is he doing? Where's his trust in God? That's another aside, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Again, I, we, we don't know. I, I'm, I'm guessing that was really probably not a choice that showed his trust in God. Is this the reason why what comes next happens. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. We don't know the reason, but it could have been because of disobedience. And was left there with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, forbidden for Israelites to take foreigner wives because they'll turn their heart away. Look at Solomon. The name of one was Orpah, not Ophrah. Oprah, but Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, okay, married for about 10 years, no children, barren. I, di I didn't get that the first read, okay? And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, these were political, boy, look at the parallels. These were politically uncertain times. They were strangers in a strange land. They moved from the place where Yahweh was supposed to be worshipped to a place where 
Chemosh, and all kinds of idols were worshipped. The husband died. His death was untimely. Both of the sons married Moabite women, again, forbidden. They had no children, and then the sons died. Now, what's interesting, I read some commentators. I hope this interests you as much as it. It's just kind of interesting. Why did they die? We don't know. But the name of Malon means sick. The name of, of uh, Chilean means pining, pining away. Could have been that they were sickly from the famine or sickness was brought on and they ultimately died. It could have been that they were involved in the battles that we read of in Judges chapter 3. We don't know. But it, it, it's pretty apparent that they both died at the same time with no children left. Now, you're going to see this in this next part. The focus of chapter 1 is Naomi's bitterness. And you look at that, you read through that, and a lot of times what we do, we don't really take that to heart. There is good reason why she had a great deal of disappointment. It's kind of a parallel with Job, and yet she doesn't respond quite like Job does. But here's the lesson that I am taking, and we'll read verses 6 through 18 in just a minute, out of this that may be helpful. This is in Ruth chapter 1. Don't judge, please, please, don't judge your circumstances until the last chapter. Okay? You may be going through a dark time right now. But don't judge your circumstances presently until the last chapter. And, and you know, the thing about providence, it really, it really only works maybe sometimes in the present, but it really only works in hindsight where you can go back and say, right now this is bad, but you get down the road a little bit and you say, wow, look at how God turned that and used that for good. So indeed, like Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. Let's go on to verses 6 through 18, okay? And I'll read through this. A young woman's conversion, turning to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Does that sound a little bit familiar, kind of like 1 Thessalonians? Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, now watch this, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food, another sign of God's providence. Had Israel repented? That's the indication. So there was food once again. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. They went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Now, the next part, I'm going to skip down to verse 13. Because the next part of this, she's just telling them the practical. There was a law that if a, 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 a woman's husband died, then the brother or the next of kin was to marry that woman, and to raise up offspring. And she says, that, that ain't going to happen. I'm too old for a husband. I'm too old to have kids. And so you guys need to go back home. But look at this in verse 13. She says, would therefore um, you wait until the, the children, if I could have them, were grown, um, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Now, I want you to watch. When I, what, what is the title of the sermon on your notes? A Dark Providence and a Woman of Excellence. And as I got through that, I'd already printed it, and I was reading some more. Actually, there are two women of excellence. It may not be readily apparent, but I want you to watch this now. Two women of excellence and one woman, she was, a, she was probably a really, really good person. But she did what I said a minute ago, took the easy way. We never hear from her again. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Now, earlier, Naomi kissed them, and they wept. They were, both Orpah and Ruth really, really loved Naomi. That says something about Naomi. Okay? Orpah kissed her. But what does it say about Ruth? Look. But Ruth clung to her. King James uses the past, past tense, at least Old English, of cleave. Does that sound familiar? Where else is cleave used? For this cause, Genesis 2.24, shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? So it says here in the King James that she clave. We don't say that anymore, do we? She clave to Naomi. She became one flesh with Naomi. Now this is prior to, it looks like from the passage, her conversion. God was doing a work in her. She clung. You know what that word means? It means to stick like glue. That's what every husband and wife make a vow to do. When you stand before the preacher, leaving all of this behind, and I'm, I'm sticking like glue to my spouse, for better or for worse, richer or for poor, sickness in the nail. I give you my faith till death do us part. And lo and behold, that's what Ruth was doing. Look at verse 15, and she said, see, this is Naomi. Now watch this. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. She was unconverted. So Ruth, do the same thing. But, Ruth said, do, and this is used for weddings a lot. Used to be a lot, a lot more than it is today, but it, it's, it's a beautiful expression. But this is about Ruth to her mother-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go. Is this a picture of conversion? Where you go, I will go. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me daily. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Now watch this. Your people. Instead of going back to my people, your people are going to be my people. I could launch into a really, really good application of the church of Jesus Christ during COVID. Maybe I'll come back to that. Other pastors and people have asked me, how's the church? What's happening? I said, the church is fluid. That's, that's my operative word to describe the church during, not this, just this church, but every church during coronavirus. And there's a whole lot going on, and I, I, I know that, and that's why I'm just going to make that comment. 
We'll come back to it, okay? <laughs> and your God, my God. I'm not going to go back to my idols. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do to me also and more, if anything but death, parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that, she said, okay, let's go. Why did they go back to Bethlehem? Okay, somebody answer. Why did they go back to Bethlehem? Food. Now, that's, that's the external, that's the obvious reason. Why did they go back to Bethlehem as a part of God's providence? Because God wanted them in Bethlehem. He used something, food, to get them to go back to Bethlehem. Why did he want them to go back to Bethlehem? Because remember what we said, this is a type of something that would happen 700 years later. God's not in a hurry. We read in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that the, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus for everybody to go to his own hometown and be registered. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. I do not understand the depth of this, but do you, do you understand that if Naomi had hesitated and stayed in Moab, humanly speaking, right then, can God go around and do other things? Sure he can. He's God. But for the purposes of his providence, if Ruth had not gone back and taken this new convert, her daughter-in-law, Naomi, she would never have met Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, wow, type of Christ. And they would never have gotten married. They would never have had Obed, who would never have had Jesse, who would never have David. And it all fits together. Can you imagine that something written 700 years before something else is all just a part of that tapestry of God's plan? Might have been easier to stay in Moab. The easy choice is not always the best choice. Uh, I, I'm just going to Here's a picture. We've seen it in 1 Thessalonians. Ruth did what every believer in this room has to do. Turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Well, I'm not an idolater. Well, yes, you are. Prior to Christ. And we still struggle with idols. I shared with you and I've shared with you and I've shared with you. There are only two religions in the world. The worship of the creature. That's us. And the various ways we do that in the worship of our creator God. I, you know, I could ask right here, which, which one? Students, which one will you choose? And for those of us who are older, oh, we think we're past that. It's just the young people. No. We still deal with the idolatry of self-worship every day. Which one will you choose? Ruth said, I'm willing to follow 
Jehovah God, Yahweh God, your God, and to turn my back on the pagans God. Last part, verses 19 through 22, and we close with it. This, this, is, this is so good. Uh, I can go back to that in a minute. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred, watch this, because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Why? She, she suffered so deeply that she changed her identity. This is, this is a kind of a temporary thing, but have you been there? She said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now, did I tell you what Naomi means? Pleasant, delightful. What does Mara mean? Bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Please, 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 if you feel like that right now, remember, wait until the last chapter. Please. And that might be heaven. But for followers of Christ, it is incredible. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity on me. Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite. She's still called Ruth the Moabite. What's interesting, I love it when Boaz, who obviously was older, much older, calls her daughter in Ruth. Hmm. He doesn't give her that identity. Anyway, they did. Her daughter-in-law with her who had returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. God's providence is at work again, and it is beautiful. Now, one thing that, that it says is that when she came to town, when Naomi came to town, and this, this has been at least 10, 12 years, you know, after she left, people were shocked. Have you ever seen somebody that you haven't seen for a long time, and you know they've gone through some pretty severe stuff. And have you ever said, I, I, I know you adults have said, just wait. You guys that uh, are getting ready to get out of high school right now or in a year or two or three or whatever it is, you're going to come back for your 10th reunion. Mark my words, you're going to say, is that, is that so-and-so? Man, they look like they've been rowed hard and put up wet. I, I, whoa, how they have changed. Her, her bitterness had so altered even her, her face, her countenance. Rowed hard and put up wet. That's a horse kind of thing. I saw some of you say, what did he say? I have no idea. <laughs> For those of us who have lived any length of time, we know that the road to glory is not a straight line. There are so many ups and downs and miscues and we go back and then we go forward. And here's what, I, if you're here right now and you say my life, and I'm talking to those of you who are at home right now as well, and you say my life really feels like a dead end. 
It's not. The perplexing times in your life, maybe they're right now, maybe they're coming, maybe you've already gone past them, are not dead-end streets. All of the setbacks, child of God, in every one of them, God is planning and plotting and governing, guiding with his providence all things for your ultimate joy. Chapter 1 ends on a down note, except for the fact that it says it's the beginning of barley harvest, upswing. So chapter 2, I'll give you the titles for the next three weeks. Chapter 2, I'm stealing that title from Star Wars. Uh, It's called A New Hope. You read chapter 2, it's A New Hope. And it's better than the one that Star Wars. Chapter 3, I'm stealing from theologian John Murray, talking about the kinsman redeemer, redemption accomplished and applied. A little bit more theological than Star Wars. The title for chapter 4 I got from a genealogy website called Ancestry.com. It's about leaving a legacy. And so I hope that you will be here. You'll be present online or here in person. But for now, at this moment, perhaps your life is on a down note. You need to remember and to embrace God's hand of providence on your life. Last, last, Last little verse. The government of the world, the cosmos, is on whose shoulder? Whose? I hear one person saying Christ. Okay. Whose shoulder is the government of everything on? Jesus. And I'll just smile as I say this. Then why are you taking the weight of the world And that could be in terms of your job, health, relationship with a spouse, relationship with a child, relationship with a parent. I could just go down the line. And sometimes we feel like the weight is on our shoulders. Why don't you right now just transfer that weight onto the one, the only one, who's got and he, one shoulder, his shoulders are broad enough for anything that you're struggling with right now. Father, I thank you for the incredible way that your word speaks to us. And Lord, I thank you for the book of Ruth. I thank you how that it gives so many insights into what is to come. Uh, 700 years down the road with the birth of Christ, our Savior, and then here 2,000 years later that He is Savior and Lord. I pray that everyone who has heard this message today would be like Ruth and not like Oprah or Orpah, that they would not return to their God's self-worship and all of the things around us, that they would follow after Jesus Christ, that their God would be Jehovah God expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, I thank you for this and pray now that as we close and we go our way, that you would be blessed 
by our response to what we have heard today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.